This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Christopher Kimball, host of Milk Street Radio. If you'd like to change the way you cook and also think about food, please check out the Milk Street podcast. We travel around the world to find pizza in Tokyo, Egyptian food in Berlin, and Bhutanese farmers in Vermont. We speak to Jamie Oliver, Rachel Ray, Al Roker, Ina Garten, as well as Michael Twitty, Marcus Samuelson, and Alice Waters. And we'll introduce you to recipes that will change the way you cook, from bright pink Tottenham cake to Afghan dumplings to shoyu sugar steak, and that one is direct from Hawaii. It's a whole new world of food right here on Milk Street Radio. Please check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts, or go to 177milkstreet.com. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello and Happy New Year. Uh, welcome to another Books of the Year podcast. Thank you for downloading us. We are your friends at Books of the Year. <laughs> yes, we are again. Um, and mm. I, th- I think there's something about early on in a, in a new year where you think, do I want to go, do I need to look for new podcasts? Am I fed up with the old ones? To which the answer I have to say is no. No. You do not need <laughs> to look for new with podcasts. This one. Or if you do, you certainly need to stick with this one. By common <clears throat> common consent, the preeminent yeah. books podcast in the in Western Europe. I think I think everyone's decided on that, haven't they? That uh, we are the ones sweeping the continent yes. with this podcast. Did you so. read anything good over Christmas? Uh, well, I read a, I read a few things. I'm reading. Uh, I've just started a book about uh, conspiracy theories, which is very very interesting. Oh, is that is that the da- David Aronovich? No, book? I've oh. read that with Voodoo Histories. That's yeah. very good as well. This is a completely different one that came out last year, and I've and I'm starting. I've got uh, on my to read list. Uh, the Palace Papers uh, by Tina Brown, I think. Yes, Tina okay. Brown. Very good. What about you? I'm reading a book about Bellingcat. Oh, really? The open okay. source uh, yes. research journalistic mob. Uh-huh. Not a mob, really. They're incredibly inspirational people, yes. which is fascinating. But mainly I was reading Hell of a Book by Jason oh, Mott. Of course. Fortunately, yes. Mr. Mott's going to be with us very shortly. Uh, an email from Sue in Chichester, Simon and Matt. Happy New Year to you both. Uh, for Christmas, I was given Robert Harris's Cicero Ooh. trilogy. Mm. That's Dictator, Lustrum and Imperium. I'd never read any Robert Harris books before, but I've often enjoyed hearing him interviewed, especially on your mm-hmm. preeminent podcast. 
Well, I started book one on Boxing Day and I've raced through them. I've nearly finished the whole trilogy. I can't believe it took me so long to discover his books and I can't believe it took Pete, my partner, so long to gift me a Robert Harris book. So in a way, it's his fault. Yeah, it is, yeah. yeah. Which one should I read next? Keep up the beautiful, uh, the wonderful work. Sorry, that's Sue Baldin. So, Fatherland Enigma, Archangel, Pompey, The Ghost, The Fear Index, Conclave, Munich, An Officer and a Spy, V2, Act of Oblivion. Okay, so I started. Um, I remember picking up Fatherland. It was it literally it was in a in a charity shop before I went on holiday, and I'd, I had a vague recollection that this was a book that, uh, and I think it is. It's the one that uh, really broke him as a as a novelist, and so I picked that up to go on holiday, and I loved. I remember it was a it was a camping holiday, and it was not the most fun camping holiday right. ever. Uh, so I loved. So I've got a soft spot for that one. What about you? I th- I think Enigma is a good place because you don't have to read, apart from the ones that are in a series, you can mm. read them in any order. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think Enigma, I think Enigma was the first Robert Harris that I read, actually. So obviously because it worked for me, I'm yeah. going to say that one. Okay, that's too. Uh, Sue, thank you very much. Uh, yes, a tweet from uh, Simon Broach, Simon Brock. Uh, I finally started reading one of Mick Heron's books over Christmas, Slow Horses series. I'm about a third of the way through his first one, and I love his style. Uh, Lisa Newman on Twitter says, I'm currently reading One Step Too Far by Lisa Gardner. It's so good. One of the best books I have read in a long time. I've just started watching the Slow Horses series on Apple TV, uh, and I'm loving it. And and Mick Heron, we obviously spoke to him previously on the podcast. Very good. An email from Guillermo. Um, Hello, blessed bookworms. Happy New Year. My darling wife and I decided to give each other four books this Christmas, which I thought was rather a nice idea. We set a budget of £40 each, Mm-mm. which I imagine is the total rather than yeah. uh, each book, and made the rule that at least one of the books had to be non-fiction. I thought long and hard about what to get my wife, who is a woman of the world, a great thinker, lover of the arts, intelligent and adventurous. After hours of reading reviews online, my word, the application for buying your other half a present, showing the rest of us up, (laughs) Guillermo, and listening to some great book podcasts such as yours, which I believe to be the most preeminent one. Preeminent again? Wow. All these people think it's preeminent. I decided on the following. Lessons in Chemistry uh, by Bonnie Gamos, Entangled Life by Melvin Sheldrake, and non-fiction about the wonders of fungi. I've heard about that, yeah. yeah. The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida by Sheehan Karanuti Lacker, which is a Booker Prize winner, and Mad Honey by Jody Pico oh. and Jennifer Finley Boylan, who sat in the studio with us Indeed. not so long ago. So down to our local bookshop, I went to pick out and buy the books. Whilst I mooched around the shelves, I started to get excited about the selection I'd be getting from my beloved. Would it be a literary classic from the list I keep on my bedside table titled Books You Must Read... Or would she surprise me, perhaps, with a new piece of writing by an author I've never heard of? How my mind raced. I left the shop buzzing with anticipation. On the big day, I handed over my four carefully chosen books to the love of my life and smiled from ear to ear as the choices were met with very pleasing sounds. Ooh, this looks good. Yay, I've always wanted to read this one. Fungi, wow, that looks interesting. Oh, great, I read a brilliant review of this. Ah. I had nailed it. My lady love was enraptured by her presence. Now it was my turn. Here we go. My dearest darling handed over a beautifully wrapped bundle of books. I couldn't wait to see what she had chosen. The first one out of the wrapping was a little bit of a surprise, not in the way I was hoping. 52 Things to Learn on the Loo. (laughs) Okay. Maybe this one had been bought in line with our £40 budget. Anyway, next up. Moon Witch, Spider King by Marlon James. I mean, it looks good. I don't really like fantasy. 
It's a sequel to another of his books, which I haven't read. So far, so average. Okay. I turned to the third book. The Thursday Murder Club by Richard Osman, ah. who was on this podcast, yes. um, which I think he appreciated in making him the yes, it is. gigantic author that he is. Where today. he is now. Yes, says Guillermo. I mean, all well and good, a fun, light-hearted book, which I know because I've read it already. Oh, dear. My beau actually lent it to me after she had read it. Oh. So now we have two copies of that. Up until now, I'd managed to keep a string of noises going, oh, thank you, mm, this looks interesting. But I'd run out of steam, to be honest wasn't sure how I would fake my excited sounds for the fourth choice. Luckily, I didn't have to. As my eyes set upon the stylish cover of the fourth book, I let out a tiny sigh of relief, because the final choice from her ladyship was Knife Edge. <laughs> oh, outrageous! Oh, my goodness! By oh, there it is. How to get your email read out. That is outrageous. Simon Mayer. <laughs> oh, great, I said completely, genuinely. <laughs> You like him, don't you? said my beloved with a smile. I do indeed. Uh, and so I just wanted to say thank you, Simon, for saving what could have been my worst Christmas present in a long while, with no offence intended to any of the other authors or to my wife, who is the scandalous bit, doesn't listen to this podcast. Well, in which case, I think we all know where our bread buttered there, don't yes. we, Guillermo? Also, Guillermo, I have to say, if she's just started to listen, she might stop. Yes. She's now been insulted. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, time. though, giving him a book for Christmas that she'd already read and given him before, yes. it's not a great... Like knife Edge. What yes. a fantastic... What a fantastic book that is, by the way. Yeah. Also, yeah. TikTok. Um, yeah, still available. Never yeah. mind. Yeah. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch, we would love to hear from you. Email at any time, particularly if you're... <laughs> no, don't mean that. Uh, books of the year at yahoo.com. You can follow us on Twitter, which is Books of the Year, and we're on Instagram, pick any page. Here we go, top episode on the way. Okay, so here comes our very first book for our uh, Books of the Year podcast, and delighted to say, all the way from South Carolina, I know that because he's just told me, uh, <laughs> well best selling done. author Jason Mott. Hello, Jason, how are you, sir? Good morning, I'm doing terrific. Uh, it's sort of lunchtime here. What do we have within in South Carolina? What, what uh, Seven a.m. Actually, still very early. Your sun hasn't even really come up yet. What kind of weather do you have outside? It's a stinker here, but we hear a lot about American weather. How's it been? No, so actually, being in the southeast, we get a lot of our winters are very mild. So it's actually going to be almost seventy degrees a day, what? which is not fun. Oh, yeah, goodness. winter should be cold. Winter yeah. should not be seventy degrees. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, in the UK, we talk a lot about weather. So I just thought, it's, yeah, why not? <laughs> Not, yeah. yeah, it's not really relevant. I'll to your drink book. tea and you talk about the weather. Okay. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jason Mott's book is hell of a book. Before we talk about it, Matt will describe the cover. Oh, yes. And you, I just know you've got a different cover. I'm going to say, well, I'm going to hold the cover up to Jason. Is that the one that's going to be on bookshelves, Jason? Mine or Simon's? I'm holding up mine. Which one are we talking about, Jason? Do you think? Uh, both, actually. One is the hardback, one is the softback. So oh, both right. of those will be... Okay. Okay. Which shelf you go to, they're both out there. Okay, well, I'll, I'll do the, the do the hardback then, which is a very it's a very arresting cover. It's a block <laughs> of red uh, with a, a sort of gold lining around the edges. And then hell of a book uh, written in big block gold and black letters. Uh, Jason Mott's name at the bottom. And then some testimonials. More than lives up to its title and powerful, timely and provocative. Okay. Okay, well, I have the paperback, uh -huh. uh, which has hell of a book in big white uh, letters. It has an Af African-American man uh, with his eyes closed and then 
kind of like with a double image. You double it, yeah, like like those uh, Russian dolls. Yeah, where like, it's one inside another, like inside it's another. Yeah, Top of the Pops, nineteen seventy. Yes, very Top of the Pops. <laughs> At the <laughs> top, it says Candy's Carty Williams quote from Candy's uh, truly one hell of a book and winner of the National Book Award for Fiction. So already we know that we're talking about a uh, a very exciting book. Now we're talking to you. Uh, Jason, because the book is coming out in paperback uh, here, and uh, a lot of people getting very excited. So, in before we go any further, and I know this is kind of old hat for you because this book has been around, particularly in the states, for a while and in your head for even longer. Introduce us to Hell of a Book. Yeah, it's always hard to introduce the book, but I'll give my best shot. Um, Hell of a Book is the story of an author on a book tour, and as he's traveling around the states pitching his book as one does when they're traveling for book tour, uh, he meets this 10-year-old boy who he simply calls the kid. And everywhere the author goes on his tour, this kid keeps showing up. Um, and there's a lot of questions about whether or not this kid is actually real or if it's part of the author's imagination. The author in question has a very overactive imagination. But as the story evolves, it also tackles this story that takes place in southeastern North Carolina, which is about policing and police violence and the, the impact that that all has on African-Americans. Okay, so that is that sort of fifty percent of the book. Yes. The other, the other yeah, fifty. I'll give you that. That's fair. <laughs> but, that, but that certainly gives us a, a, an arc, an arc of a story. Um, tell. So, first of all, the title is extraordinary and fantastic as well. Was th was it always going to be called Hell of a Book? Because we should say that in the story, the author who's promoting his book, that book is called. Hell of a book. So <laughs> that you're playing with us immediately. Was it always going to be that? Uh, actually, no. My my agent forced me to title it Hell of a Book. I did not want to. I fought it for a long time. I thought Hell of a Book was a very arrogant and pretentious title. Like, can you imagine walking by a bookshelf and seeing that title? Like the 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 overconfidence. I was kind of, was kind of calling it, but. My agent fought and she said, no, like there's a huge way that this works. And we worked with it and it came out OK. So I got lucky there. Back in the 70s, Jason, in the UK, there was a, a band who were called the Sensational Alex Harvey Band. That was their name. <laughs> and I thought then that's a stroke of genius because now every radio presenter <laughs> yeah, of course. has to say <laughs> yes. that was the Sensational Alex Harvey Band. So there was no way there was no way out. And you've done you've done the same thing with this. It's a great it's inspired. <laughs> It is. That is. My agent's a very smart lady. She she makes good calls. I, I'm okay with that. <laughs> what did you want to call it? Um, I had a lot of different titles, so I am very terrible at titles. Uh, Hell of a Book is my fourth novel, and I have yet to title any of my novels. Every time I submit a title, my agent or my editor shoots it down hard and fast, so I'm very terrible at titles. <laughs> okay. So just tell us a little... You've told us about the author who's on, who's on a book tour, Whenever his name comes up in the conversation, there is I mean, it's a time-honoured thing. People have done it for years, but you just there's just a line. So we don't know what his name is. The name is removed when the name is supposed to be there. Why, why is that important that we don't know the name of the author? Um, it's actually a complicated question. So throughout the novel, he's referred to simply as the author. Um, the novel plays a lot with identity and because there's a lot of questions about the three characters, the three main characters. There's the author, the kid, and this 10-year-old boy named Soot who lives in North Carolina. And as you read the novel, there are a lot of questions about are these characters somehow linked together? Are they very different? And so to avoid those things and to also kind of make a statement about how 
the the American policing system and the impact of racism affects people kind of across the board, across the spectrum. Um, the identities have been removed. And there's also a lot of discussions about like people being seen for who they are versus being seen for certain monikers, such as the race that you are or the gender that you are, like these, uh, these labels that were put upon each other. So I decided, to, I decided to embrace that. I wanted everyone to have labels and to really kind of build and play within that, that construct. Uh, Matt's got a question. He's coming in next. Uh, before we go any further, I want to quote from page 68. Oh, yeah. Okay. You won't know what's on page 68, Jason, though, obviously, <laughs> it, it, uh, it, it's your book. Uh, let me just find it. Oh, it's not page 68. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> page 67. Oh, yeah. Here page we go. Page, page 66. Ah. Okay. So our, so our unnamed author yeah. is, is promoting his book. I quote from your book, Jason. The radio interviews come and go with the same cadence of questions and answers. So they say, what's your book about? So that's precise. That's the bit that we've done so far. So there you go. And uh, I've done book tours myself. And there is a point where you know immediately whether the person doing the interview has got beyond the press release. OK. Maybe has read the first chapter. So there's two points in me mentioning this. First of all, clearly I've got to at least page 68. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, but also there is a is there a, is that that's a, that's a very profound observation. There is a cadence to these Radio, oh, this is a podcast. There is a cadence to these interviews. You're sussing us out as well as us sussing you out. True? Yes, very true. There you go. I just wanted to establish the fact we've read the book, because it is a hell of a book. <laughs> In which case, I'm going to quote from page 314, oh, which okay. absolutely <laughs> buys me all of the brownie points. Um, no. So um, the, the reason I want to do that, Jason, is that you, so you've already touched on the fact that we are talking about one element of the book and a, um, probably the, the element that runs through like a stick of rock runs through this book, is um, African-American boys uh, dying um, at the hands of police. And I want to quote... So there is... It strikes me that there are a number of ways to talk about that and to tell that story. And it's interesting that you've chosen to tell it this way. And the quote I want to I want to give you is, as I say, from from three hundred fourteen. All we want is to be known for something else. We want the great history we see in others, and all we're ever given is the story of being in pain and being forced to overcome. It strikes me that there is a story that this story could have been written as one where it's uh, the central character is constantly in pain and having to overcome. And you took a conscious decision not to write that story either because it's been done or because for other reasons. But could you just just explore that for us? Yeah, I can definitely talk about that. So there is a, a pretty sad tragedy where when it comes to African-American stories, there's this trifecta, like this holy trinity of stories that we are allowed to talk about and allowed to tell. And they are the slave narrative, uh, the civil rights narrative, and the inner city coming of age narrative. Like we've all seen these movies, we've all seen these television shows. They are the primary means through which African-American stories are allowed to be told. Um, We're rarely allowed to be comedic and surrealist and absurdist and all those other genres, all those other means and methods that they have of telling stories and being involved in stories. We are rarely allowed to have that. Um, Hell of a book, you know, for those who haven't read it, as much as it is a serious discussion of these issues, it is also a comedy. It is very absurd. It has a guest appearance by Nick Cage, of all Mm. people. Like, (laughs) it is a book that tries to be different and talk about the reasons for that difference and the reasons for why these types of stories don't really allow, aren't really allowed to exist as much as they are for other people. 
people are trying to get a handle on the story that you've written, Jason. Just something of the genesis might be useful. Am I right in saying this, this, this started life as a screenplay? Is that right? Um, it eventually tested the waters as a screenplay. It began a long time ago when I was on my very first book tour back in 2013. I had never been on book tour before. I wound up having like a really huge one, was on the road for months. And that was when I kind of got in that rhythm of what interviews are and how you kind of, how they're kind of like Groundhog's Day. You wake up and you answer the same questions over and over and over. And at some point I pitched it to my agent and my editor as an idea for a novel. And they both were like not big fans. They kind of shot it down. And so at some point I did decide to write a screenplay and I submitted a few, to a few screenwriting contests and actually won a couple of screenwriting contests with it. And then I decided to go back to it and really make it into a novel and have it become the thing that I really wanted it to be. So there's a certain experiment going on. You're, you're experimenting in style. You want to break away from the, 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 the three other, I know you're a poet as well, but I think it was three other novels before this. Mm -hmm. uh, are you trying to were you trying to consciously sort of put a full stop after those and, and experiment with this one? Yeah, very much so. I had gotten to the place where, as a lot of artists and writers and creators are, you become known for a certain type of thing, and that's the, the only thing anyone wants from you. You become very, very boxed into a certain type of storytelling or a certain type of art creation. And I had gotten really frustrated with that. Um, I am someone who believes that you should be trying new boundaries and doing new things with your, your art and your style and your, who you are as a person. You should always try new things. So I did. I wanted to do something that was completely far afield from all the other projects that I'd done, something that even I was nervous and terrified to write because it was so different and so far out there. Um, and that's where Hell of a Book came from. It was the book that I wrote for myself, um, not for anyone else. I just wrote it because... I want to try new things and talk about issues that I was concerned about in a way that I hadn't done before. And thankfully, it worked out. Does that mean that this is more than a little autobiographical? Yes, very much so. Um, you know, I oftentimes tell people that this is like the hidden autobiography. There are, you know, it's about 60 to 70 percent of the book, like, is pulled directly from my life. Um, other parts of it are fictionalized just for the sake of plausible deniability. So when I decide I want privacy, I can just opt to say, oh, that part's fiction. But yes, there's a lot of autobiography in this and people that have read like my first novel in particular, The Returned, or people that just know me, like they can see through it all. Yeah, a lot of autobiography in this. Um, I want to talk about media training. Because <laughs> um, uh, a few years ago, I had a, had a book coming out and my publishers very wisely said, I think you, we should r run some of these interviews. There were some controversial things in the book. So they said, mm -hmm. why don't we do some media training? And I met a very nice wow. media trainer who was very good and we ran things uh, and it was a, a positive. Hang on. So you were, you were media trainer? You're... How yes. long, how many years in broadcasting you've had and you were media yes, trained? I had a few decades, but the, this is, but there were some, there were some issues around in the press at the oh, time. Oh, I see. So we, so we just ran oh, through Oh, right. Those. Yeah. No, I remember right. that. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, my, my, my takeaway from the media training was very positive uh, and I thought it was quite helpful. It just made me think in a slightly different way. I am led to believe purely by reading this book, Jason, that your experience of media training is not quite the same <laughs> because our unnamed author has, I mean, one of the funniest but most nightmarish sequences in the book is when he encounters his media trainer. Could you just introduce us to that? Just tell us what, what was going on there. Yeah, sure. So the scene in the novel, um, the author is taken to a media trainer to talk about his book before he goes on book tour. 
And the media trainer essentially tells him, you know, he should try to avoid talking about race, try to avoid bringing up any kind of controversial subjects. And so in my own story, yeah, my first novel came out months before it came out. I went to see a media trainer. I was flown to New York. Got to have a three-hour session with this media trainer, which is very surreal. (laughs) They are really good people. They know what they're doing. They're good at what they do. But it is a very surreal experience to have someone sit across the table from you and tell you what your book is actually about. Even though you wrote it, they sit there and they tell you what it's about and they tell you how to answer questions for it. And they do a good service. Like I'm not bashing media trainers, but I want no, you to are. Pl- <laughs> <laughs> you absolutely you are. Absolutely are. <laughs> in the book, the author is bashing them. I, in this interview, am not bashing them. Thank you. <laughs> but no, it is it is a very specific skill and I want it to play on some of that surrealism, some of that strangeness, and some of the sentiments I've gotten, not from media trains, but from editors and publishers and readers over the years about how I should or should not discuss race in my work. And I think that's just very interesting. What, okay, so a lot of people will have taken a double take, you know, that that a, a white media trainer might tell an African-American not to write about race. Is that genuinely what happened to you? It is... I'll say not in that, not with that media trainer. Let me say it that way. Um, What I did with that media trainer in the novel, I took the words of other people and put it into that media trainer's mouth. That poor, poor media trainer. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I have, I've definitely in, because no one says it directly. That's the thing that it's never talked about directly. And I'm not knocking on publishers or editors or anyone like that. I've had great editors and great publishers, but there is this, this kind of undercurrent at times about how publishers they want to make money and the way they view making money is you don't plant flags you don't take a side of an of a of a discussion you kind of stay in the middle you try not to offend anyone because anyone that you offend is not going to buy your book and that hurts sales etc etc so i was in a lot of roundabout conversations about how hey you know you could pull back on this thing right here because that may you know offend certain people because you're kind of bringing race into it so let's just tell you know do it down the middle try to stay away from these kinds of things and again, this came from readers, this came from friends, this came from people outside of publishing. It's just a very strange phenomenon. So so in the book, the media trainer is saying precisely this about using uh, unity-inducing language. And you then go into this sequence. Now, I think you're <laughs> riffing here and having a good time. But anyway, this is... So the media trainer says you should use uh, unity-inducing language, post-racial, trans-Jim Crow, epitraumatic, alt-reparational, oh omni-restitutional. Now, this is where I think you're making... This is great. Jingoistic, body positive, <laughs> sociocultural, <laughs> transcendental, indigenous repostic, treaty of Fort Laramie perpendicular, meta-exculpatory, pan-political, uber-instramutual, <laughs> MLK-adjacent, demi-Arcadian bucolic. Now... You're I think having... you're live, I think. Yeah, I think you're making, you're having fun there, I believe. I am having a lot of fun there. That was one of the most fun moments in the novel for mm-hmm. me to write. <laughs> but you kind of, I, I, I underlined it because it seemed to be instrumental of what you were saying earlier, which is it, it's, very, it's, it's pointed. Uh, we understand what you're saying, but it's laugh out loud funny. Plus, we've also met people who kind of use that sort of language anyway. Yes, yes. <laughs> so what do you say to people like that? Um, in the real world, I, I just try to, I try to understand what they're going for. Um, I think you have to plant flags in life. Like you have to pick a side of an argument and defend that side of the argument. Yes, be open to the other side of the argument, be a good listener, all those good things. 
but this notion that you should exist down the middle and never offend anyone and never pick a side in an argument like you cannot live that way you cannot exist that way i've seen people who've tried to do it and there are some people who who make it you know they're they're actors and authors and artists who exist by never offending anyone and they make a lot of money doing it but i learned a long time ago that's not who i want to be um if i if i can ever be remembered for something which i think is what we all shoot for let me remember for picking a side and hopefully the correct side so jason simon sort of explored that the the idea of the author encountering the media i want to talk about the author encountering other readers and there is and again this made me laugh out loud when i was when i was reading it um you have um the author talking about the uh, kind of conversations they have with readers who have supposedly read the book so after they this is a quote after they found out that your book is actually in actual stores they'll want to know how you got your agent how you got your editor what software you used to write how long it took you to write it how much money you got paid how many copies you sold whether or not you're going to make it into a movie hollywood always knows how to find the worthwhile books a reader once told me there's a lot to unpack there jason let's start with that quote right at the end <laughs> hollywood always knows how to find the worthwhile books it struck me as soon as i read that i thought someone has definitely said that to you jason has someone said that <laughs> yeah someone has definitely said that um it, it's amazing and fascinating and weird how that is the thing that people want to know they don't care about anything else that you've done in your writing all they want to know is has it been a movie? Is anyone going to adapt it? That is the only question people want to know the answer to, and I find that to be very fascinating. I, let's get on to the other parts of that of that paragraph, though. It's the how how long did it take you to write it? What what software are you writing it on? Basically, every question that they're giving you there is something other than what is your book about or asking you because i've read your book what i think your book is about or asking you for some, for some kind of insight. Is that what you're actually saying as well, is that when you're, when you're encountering people, that uh, they are asking you questions about anything other than the book that you've written? The reason for you, being, for you two being in that room together is the book, and they're asking you about anything other than that, because these are the easier sort of, you know, tangential questions that they can ask you. Yeah, I think this is, I think people do it because um, so many people aspire to be a writer. Um, they have stories they want to tell and they they want to know, you know, how you did it. They want to know, you know, what are your tricks? Where do your ideas come from? And, you know, what software do you use? Because everyone wants to do it the way that you did it and hopefully arrive at the place that you are, which is totally understandable and totally fine. Like I've done it when I was, you know, especially early in my writing stages, I was very much wanting to know what th what secrets author were use authors were using to kind of get to where they were. So I think that's where most of it comes from. It's not coming from any malicious place at all. It's just coming from a place of, you know, there's that, that, that expression that everyone has a story in them and people do, they want to tell these stories. And so they want to know what techniques, what, what tips and tricks and all those kinds of things. The, the sad thing, well, not the sad thing, but the, the fact is there are no tips and tricks and secrets. You just sit down and you start doing it and you keep doing it and hopefully a story comes out. I remember when we had um, Lee Child on the podcast and we asked him a question along those lines of, you know, are you writing in the morning? Are you what mm -hmm. kind of, you know, do you write on a laptop? Do you whatever? And he called us out on the question immediately <laughs> and said, this is just a means of people who aren't writing to find an excuse for why they're not writing you should just get down and write you don't need it to be the perfect environment you don't need it to be looking out over a you know gorgeous prairie or whatever you just need to get down 
and write. And if you look for any other reason, you're just procrastinating, you're just finding an excuse not to write. That always, it struck me when he said it, it, it sounded harsh, but actually the more I think about it, the more, the more I think it rings true. Yeah, I completely agree with it. It is, it is very direct. I won't, even, I won't even say it's harsh. It's very direct, but it's also very true. I mean, the fact of the matter is there are things in our lives that we are very passionate about and we devote our time and energies to them. And there are things about which we are hobbyists. We, are, we have a passing interest and no one wants to admit that. Um, for many people, writing is a passing interest. It's just a, a hobby they're not really passionate about. And that's OK. Like you can be a hobbyist writer and be happy doing that. But at the end of the day, if you want to be an author, if you want to really be a writer, you cannot have excuses. You have I've written in hotel rooms. I've written on planes. I've written in crowded spaces. You can't wait for that perfect place. You just sit and you do it wherever you are. You do it. I think it was I think this is I'm paraphrasing a quote from Philip Pullman here. where He said something like it's all very well waiting for the muse to find you. But the muse would be a lot more effective if she knew where you were. <laughs> at any, That's beautiful. At any time of the day, you know, just suggesting that for most people, a degree of routine uh, is going to help anyway. But there's no right answer, is there? You know, people write when they want to write and some people will write on a laptop. Some people use a quill. Uh, it, it's whatever works for you. I guess the only the only thing that seems common to everybody, Jason, is and his uncontroversial advice is is to read, and that the more input you have, the more chance you have of something resembling output. Yeah, I'll agree with that. I will put a little asterisk by it and maybe okay. be mildly controversial when I say that I've met aspiring writers who read too much, and what I mean by that is. Their quest to read and research and find inspiration through reading is oftentimes their means of hiding the fact that they don't want to sit down and write. Because um, yes. it's like, hey, you should be writing. It's like, no, I got to read these 13 books about the subject first. Yeah. And it's like, no, you got to, at some point, you got to sit your butt at the desk and do the writing. So, yes, be a good reader, but don't let reading become the excuse for you not writing. Um, I mentioned uh, that you'd, uh, uh, you're a poet and you have uh, books of poetry published i have a theory i'm not quite sure how strong this theory is but i think you can always tell if an author is a poet i think there are ways of there are ways of i don't know whether it's sentence construction a paragraph construction metaphor simile i don't know what it is but i admit i did know that you were a poet before i read the book but i think you can tell oh yeah as a yeah. poet do you think that's true if you're reading a book by someone you've never heard of can you tell if they're a poet um i won't say it's 100 percent accuracy but i think oftentimes you can tell um one thing that because i noticed a direct change in my own writing when i shifted when i found poetry and kind of started writing poetry and then went back to fiction my fiction had become much more tight much more economical, much more direct. Things that used to take me a whole page to say I could now do in a few sentences because poetry teaches you to have very specific language and to boil down things to their purest form and oftentimes wrap things up with an image. And so when you read work of works of fiction where the author is really good at doing that, it's usually because they have some kind of poetry background. Yeah. Okay. I just think, I think 
Do you think that's fair, Matt? I think it is, yeah. Could could we tell that Jason's a pirate? I think, basically, as you've just said, it's the metaphors that absolutely shouted out. Uh, That's that's what what, uh, got that message across to me. I want to talk to you, Jason, about, uh, and this is a complete um, uh, gear change now, is black and white movies. So, um, clearly, uh, the author... Uh, in the book is a massive fan of black and white movies and in particular the dialogue in the sort of whip crack dialogue in black and white movies and I'm I'm just going to put it out that I, I'm guessing that that is also reflected by the likes of Jason Mott I'm going to say Jason Mott's also a fan of those movies we have just come off the um, uh, Christmas break and I think it was New Year's Eve um, they were showing Witness for the Prosecution with the Marlena Dietrich version, which, and uh, me and my wife sat down to watch it, superb, really good fun, but also containing scenes where, to begin with, I was saying to my wife, no one talks like that, and no one talked <laughs> like that in the 40s either. This isn't an age thing, this is just a, you know, it's Billy Wilder script, it's superb, but no one talks like that. And yet it's it's so attractive, so seductive a language. Um, and I want to talk to you about that because this is something you you're, or the author addresses in the book of, yes, I know that people don't talk like this, but I love the way they talk, that cadence. Talk, 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 because as I said, Jason, I'm going to guess you're a fan of it. Tell us why you're a fan of it. Yeah, very good guess. Um, so yeah, I am a huge fan of film noir. For those who don't know, it is a genre of film from about the 40s up throughout the late 60s, maybe into early 70s. But you think of Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall and Casablanca and all those films where it's gangsters. They do very fast talk. They use a lot of slang that people never really use in the real world. And it kind of traces back, like one of the largest authors during that genre was Mickey Spillane. Mickey Spillane wrote so many novels with that style that Hollywood came and kind of adapted to film. But yeah, I love it. Like as as a writer and just as a person, like I'm a huge fan of stories that exist within specific languages. And I don't mean like French or German. I just mean um, slivers of culture that are identified by their language, by the cadence of their language, by the rhythm, by the certain kind of the slang that they use, that has always fascinated me. Um, some of my favorite TV shows, I love Deadwood, um, for mm. those who haven't seen, like because Deadwood is so much about language. Um, and that is also why film noir kind of spoke to me. It's something I am completely obsessed with and completely love. Um, and weirdly enough, it's, it's fun talking to a, a podcast from England, like, um, when I was a kid, late night PBS here in the States would come on, um, Are You Being Served? And <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. there you go. There you go. Can um, I just apologize for some of, no, our, no, no. Some do, of the output do, of that? Wow. Don't you dare. Um, are You Being Served? Uh, keeping, keeping Up Appearances. <laughs> wow. Those were yeah. the two shows I went to bed with every night as a kid. And to this day the language there which again like i'm not gonna say no one ever you but like there's such a specific time stamp of language that Mm -hmm. occurs in those two tv shows so i think that's part of why i love shows that time stamp things to a specific location a specific era a specific culture because it fascinates me that's the first and I think only time Lauren McCall and Are You Being Served have yes, been there in you the go. same <laughs> sentence. Oh, wow. Um, but but go, going back to that language, there's a boldness in using that language because 
you writing it, your editor reading it before it goes out, there will have been that little voice right at the back of the head saying, nobody talks like this. We've mm -hmm, got to change mm -hmm. it because nobody would talk like this. And yet, and I, I don't doubt when they were writing those scripts in the 40s, there was someone saying, yeah, but nobody talks like this. And the boldness to say, I know that, but we're still going to do it because I like how it sounds. I like that cadence. I like, I like what we're bringing out. Yeah, and there's also... so. So much of Hell of a Book is about this acceptance of a conceit. You're accepting the fact that, and the author in the novel knows it. The author in the novel lets you know very early on. He's aware of the reader. The author knows the reader is there. And so he asks the reader in a roundabout way to accept this conceit, to accept the fact that this novel is going to be an exchange. And not only accept that, also accept the fact that I speak in this language that no one really used. I have this overactive imagination where I see things that aren't really there. The novel repeatedly asks you to accept these things that both of you know are not real. And yet we're going to use those things to have a larger message. And so that is how and why some of the language that is in the novel works that way. It serves, it serves a purpose. And the longer you read the novel, the author begins eventually explaining why he has this obsession with not with language and all these other things. And I think that's another the fun part of the novel is that it's a novel that acknowledges the reader's presence and really wants to have a conversation with them, but in a roundabout, fun kind of way. Is that why there are lots of questions throughout the book? It ends on a question. Is that part of that dialogue that you're talking about? Yeah, wholeheartedly. Um, like I said, I wanted the novel to be a discussion with the reader. Like, so much of novel writing is pretending that the reader is not there. Um, it's almost like novel writing exists in this space where we we build this construct that the reader is this eavesdropper who's come to the page and who has come to the moment in the story. And they're just hidden in the background. They're watching things play out and everyone is acting as though the reader is not there. And that's not what I wanted for this novel. I wanted this novel to, from the very beginning, turn and look directly at the reader and say, hello, I know that you are there and I'm going to treat you to a story. And because I recognize that you're there, sometimes I'm going to talk to you, sometimes I'm not. But the idea is that the reader's presence is, is seen. The reader is seen and identified very early on in the novel. And I think that was something that the novel builds on as it moves forward. And taking my lead here from an unnamed author, in your experience, Jason, are you dealing and very aware of the fact you're dealing with a publishing industry which is still adjusting to and accommodating successful black writers? Yes, very much so. Um, publishing is, like many businesses, is, many industries, in a very unique space where publishing has the potential and the ability to give voice to a lot of people who have not had voice. Um, that, is, that is what art does. Art gives voice to the, to the silence. That's what it has always done. And publishing is the vehicle through which that happens you know which books get published and how they're marketed and how they're promoted and what the budgets behind the marketing are all of that eventually leads to certain voices being heard or certain voices being overlooked so publishers are in this great space of power and yet publishing publishing is a business publishers want to make money and so they have to gamble on do we want to push through this new voice which may upset things and may not sell x amount of dollars or do we want to go with the old familiar voice that we've heard a thousand times before which is guaranteed to make money and so yeah there's a back and forth that's happening there about publishers having this responsibility to kind of give voice to people and this option this ability i won't say responsibility i say this ability to give voice to these people 
and yet publishing is a business. So you're trying to find that middle ground, trying to find that space where you can have black authors and other minority authors as well, have their voice be heard and yet also make it economically viable. Um, it's funny with hell of a book, we received a lot of pushback early on. We were trying to find publishers for it because publishers didn't know what to do with it because it wasn't the typical book. It wasn't a typical black book in particular. And so a lot of them kind of shied away from it because publishers want to copy paste the, the previous marketing campaign and have that be successful. And hell of a book was a place where you couldn't do that. You couldn't copy paste the old marketing because it doesn't work the way the old books do. Have you got a name for your next book? <laughs> I have not. I tell you, I'm terrible <laughs> with names. So at some point, my agent will tell me what to call it. Because <laughs> uh, I was thinking of, you thought that was good. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> what do you think? Anyway, the... I like uh, it. Uh, just, just finally, uh, Jason, the, when you won the uh, National Book Award uh, for Fiction, I think I'm, in, in your speech, you dedicated the book to, and I scribbled most of this down, correct me if I'm wrong, to all the, uh, uh, I can't even read my writing, uh, to all the outsiders, to all the weirdos, the, uh, the, the kids who were kind of outside, the bullied uh, and you wanted it to be for them. Can you just explain a little bit about, I mean, and it got a great reaction, your speech. Just explain a little bit about what you were trying to get at. Yeah, very much so. Um, so I grew up as that kid. I was the kid who was bullied. I was the nerd who read too much. I was too much of one thing and not enough of another. I just didn't fit into any groups. So I was bullied pretty constantly through my, you know, up until my adulthood. Um, and so having gone through that, and remembering the pain and the frustration and the anger and all those feelings that you get from being bullied the book to me was very much about this these people that don't fit in as i mentioned earlier like minority writers are never given the chance to be absurdist and to be funny and to be silly in their storytelling and that's exactly what the hell of a book is um they're not given the chance how many black writers have you met who are allowed to talk about film noir and who really who are build that into their writing it doesn't happen but they're out there they exist like you know, we're not just the slave narrative, civil rights narrative and the inner city narrative. Like I like Humphrey Bogart as much as the next person. I like sci-fi as much as the next person does. Um, I like weird B movies as much as anyone else does. And yet those are rarely allowed to be a part of our storytelling. Yeah. So this book was dedicated to those people. You like Nicolas Cage more than I do. So <laughs> there <we go. laughs> I am a massive Nick Cage fan. <laughs> uh, Jason Mott's book is, uh, as you may well have realized, hell of a book. There'll be further conversation with Jason uh, on our next podcast when he's doing our Q&A. Uh, but Jason, thank you very much. We appreciate you getting up early in South Carolina and having breakfast with us. Thank you very much. Thank you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier, and along with Kate Spencer, I host Forever 35, a podcast about the things we do to take care of ourselves. Join us every Wednesday with guests like author Phoebe Robinson, chef Samin Nosrat, actress Busy Phillips, and even former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. On Mondays and Fridays, we have mini episodes where we answer listeners' questions on everyday problems like how useful a butt mask really is, how to deal with a petty friend, or how to relax after a long day. So join us Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Forever 35, where we're not experts, but we are two friends who like to talk a lot about serums. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Thank you very much. 
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.